Welcome to Matan's Parsha podcast, Sefer Dvarim. Each week, a different Matan teacher will share words of Torah to illuminate the Parsha and your week. Today's shiur and Parshata Zinu will be given by Rivi Frankel, who is the administrative director of the Bellows Eshkelot Educators Institute for Tanakh and Jewish Studies, of which she is also a graduate. Rivi is a licensed tour guide. Today, we're going to be learning Ha'azinu together. So Ha'azinu is one parak, and the primary focus of this parak, Perak Lamed Bet in Devarim, is a song. It's 70 lines of what we call Shirat Ha'azinu. And what I would like to do before we jump in is just kind of give a little recap about what this song is about, what these 70s lines are about. So the first psukim, one to six, are a description of Hashem as the righteous judge. Hashem is um, compassionate. Hashem is the master of the world. And then we move into a phase between Sukim Zion and Yudalit, 7 to 14, where we kind of do a quick historical review of what Hashem has done for the Jewish people. So we talk about creation. We talk about Yitziat Mitzrayim. We talk about eventually Hashem bringing the Jewish people to the land of Israel. From there, things kind of go a little bit downhill. Psukim Tetvav through Yudchet, we have a description of the people becoming lazy and ungrateful. And in that time, they turn to serving idols. After this, between Psukim Yutet through Lamed Chet, we have Hashem is angry and he punishes the people. But ultimately, at the end of this section, after the punishment, we see Hashem's love and Hashem's redemption of the people. And then we end with the last few Psukim, 39 to 43, where it reviews again that Hashem is the ultimate master of the world. Now, when we look at these Psukim, we say to ourselves, why is this different than what we've already heard in the rest of Moshe Rabbeinu's speech. In fact, the Abar Benel, his 12th question on Parshat Vayelech, the Parsha that precedes this one before, asks, why do we need this as a shir, as a song? Why do we need this whole edition, this whole parak? It's basically what we heard throughout the entire Dvarim. And so the Abar Benel really brings that question home. And I think that in order to answer that question, we actually have to look at a pasuk from from the Parsha that comes before this. So in Devarim Lamed Aleph Yutet, we have the following Pasuk. Therefore, you should write down this song, Hashira Hazot, and you should teach it to Bnei Yisrael and put it in their mouths in order that this Shira should be for me an aid within Bnei Yisrael. And so here we have a description that somehow this shira is going to be different. And in fact, Rashi on this pasuk says, which shira, shira hazot, what is it talking about? Ah, the shira that comes exactly after Paraklamet Aleph, Paraklamet Bet, Ha'azinu. This pasuk that we, this uh, song that we have, Ha'azinu Hashemayim, right? This idea that these 70 lines somehow are going to act as a witness for Hashem within Bnei Israel. But even this we need to question, because if I were to take a look at Paraklamid Aleph and compare it to Paraklamid Bet to Ha'azinu, we would see that there are many similarities. In fact, just in the first few psukim, we can find really uh, seven different parallels where in Lamed Aleph, it actually calls out to Shemayim Va'aretz, the same way that we have in Ha'azinu, where it says Ha'azinu Ha'shemayim, right? But Tishma Ha'aretz, where we have it talking to the heavens and the earth, and we see that in Paraklamid Aleph as well. In Paraklamet Aleph, it talks about dealing with corruption. 
And here in Pasake, we also have dealing with corruption. We have a mention in Paraglamet Aleph of the land of milk and honey, Ered Zavat Chalavudvash, and how the people have eaten their fill and become lazy. And we have the same thing here in the Shira itself, where it says Yeshurun has become fat, and Israel has become fat and lazy, and therefore they serve a Vodazara. Now, just as an aside, one of the things I think is important to mention is that this is not a derogatory description of aesthetic, but rather we have to remember what's going on at the time, right? War. B'nai Israel are about to enter into the land of Israel, and what are they going to have to do? Yoshua is going to lead them in the conquest of the land. And then later when we have kings, it's going to be imperative that the Jewish people are ready to protect their boundaries, their lives, their families, their farms. Somebody who's not physically fit is not going to be able to protect themselves. And so what we have here is in Paraklamid Aleph, but then again in Paraklamid Bet, this description of the fattening of the people as a description of the people not being able to take care of themselves. The description of the people putting pleasure before their responsibilities, right? It feels good. I'm going to eat it now. I'm not going to work out. I'm not going to go on that hike. I'm not going to farm. I'm going to let my servants farm. And in that way, they're not going to be able to take care of the responsibility of protecting or, at the beginning, conquering the land. And that's really the description here. It's not one of how they look, but rather what they're able to accomplish and what led to their lack, really, of being able to accomplish that. But if we go back to these similarities, uh, one of the ones that we have is in Paraglamet Aleph, it says that I'm going to hide my face. And here we have in Pasukhafa, Yomer Astirab Panaymeam, I'm going to hide my face. So we see all of these parallels that are existing, not just in the entire Devarim or in the entire Torah, but rather even just in the parak that comes right before Lamed Bet, right before Ha'azinu. So we really have to go back to this question that the Abarbanel has. It's good that we understand that Hashem says that this should be a witness, but what is the Shira doing that's different? And so what I'd like to suggest and what I'd really like to explore together is how shira, whether we're going to define that as poetry or we're going to define that as song, is something that adds a different element and accomplishes something that's different. And in fact, we'll see in the text, as much as there's similarity, there's actually an element in the song that was not brought before. And that's really going to highlight for us what the goal of these 70 lines really are. So let's define what really a song is. So the Gemara in Megillah actually tells us very, very clearly um, on a visual level what a song is, right? So we have this Gemara on Daf Tetzayin, Amud Bet, and it says, Hashirot kulan nechtavot ariach al gabei levena, v'levena al gabei ariach. So it's describing for us a brick building. So imagine for a second, you see a child playing with Legos or those big mega blocks, right? So either they can build them one on top of another, building up a tower just straight, or they can take two blocks together and put a third one on the crack to create stability. And in fact, what the Gemara says, it continues on and it says all of the Shira and Tanakh are written in this stable way, brick on top of brick in a way that creates a basis, a foundation that's not going to move, except for the list of the 10 sons of Haman as well as the lists of the kings in listed in Yoshua. And those are written in straight lines. Again, imagine that tower for yourself, that tower that's very, very easy for the kid's sibling to come and knock over, right? And then tears and, and all of that drama. But in actuality, if we're looking at the um, messages behind it, so the 10 sons of Haman, we do want to 
destroy and fall over easily. The kings of Canaan that are listed in Yoshua, we don't want them to have a strong foundation. And so when we have Shira and Tanakh, there is a physical, visual description defined by the Gemara of what that means. Except that if we look at Shira and Tanakh, it's not just something that we can see visually. It's also, or you can also talk about the literary mechanisms that are used in poetry. Um, if we take a look at Ha'azinu, there's a lot of repetition that we don't normally see uh, in Psukim. Normally, uh, it's very succinct, very terse, the words of, of specifically Chumash, but even Tanakh in, in many cases. Um, and so here we have a different kind of writing. But beyond that, there's something thematic. Let's take what I think is probably the most famous song that we have in Tanakh. And of course, that's Shirat Hayam. But if we look at other songs that we have, so we have um, Shirat Devora or Shirat Haba'er, all of these times are times that we praise God. And so when we're looking at it from that lens, we have to ask ourselves, well, how does Ha'azinu accomplish that, right? Here, Ha'azinu is this witness of what could potentially happen if B'nai Yisrael let their guard down, right? If you sin and you let your guard down, Hashem is going to punish you. So how does that fit into this idea of Shira? And then remembering our original question of what does writing this in Shira have to add to us? What do these 70 lines add that we don't already know? Because it's not like Shira Tayam, where it's the people praising Hashem. It's not like Shira Devorah, where Devorah stands up and praises God. So in answering what is our first, but really our second question, I think that when we look back at that kind of summary that we talked about at the beginning, the end of Shirat Azinu is really what allows the entire Shira to gain its title of song. Because at the end of the day, what is the message? Hashem is the ultimate master of the world. Why do we praise Hashem? In Shirat Hayam, Shirat Devorah, Shirat Haba'er, why are we praising Hashem? Because we saw in that moment Hashem's control of the world and we blessed Him and thanked Him for it. And the reality is that even in a time of punishment, but also in a time of Geulah, which are both mentioned in Ha'azinu, that is Hashem's revelation to the world that He is in control. And so if we view Shira not necessarily exclusively as thanks, but rather a way of expressing that Hashem is in control of the universe for both the things that feel challenging for us and maybe seem to be bad for us or punishment for us, as well as the things that are the positive and Hashem rescues us from these miraculous ways, both of those are two sides of the same coin. And both of those show us that Hashem is really in charge of the world. And so when we say that, Hashem, you're going to punish us, Hashem, we're going to do wrong, that these things are going to happen, we're saying even in that time, we recognize that Hashem is in control. But I want to take a look at what it is in the Shira that is giving us an addition. Again, we're talking about all these beautiful thematic ideas of what Shira can add, but you would think that there had to be something new that was added in the Shira. If Moshe Rabbeinu, this is really the end, right? At the very end of our parak, at the very end of our parsha, our parsha and parak are interchangeable in this specific parsha. But at the very, very end of our parak, it's the description of Moshe Rabbeinu who's about to die. And Hashem tells him, you're going to die in the same way that Aaron died, right? It's that sad moment where Moshe Rabbeinu is not able to go into Eretz Yisrael, but he's able to see Eretz Yisrael. So this is really the end. So what is it in Ha'azinu that's giving us an addition to everything that we've already heard from Moshe Rabbeinu? So in order to understand 
what this difference is, there are two places that we really need to look. Number one, who was this speech meant for? If we take a look at Paraklamet Aleph, Moshe Rabbeinu is supposed to take the Torah and teach it to the Kohanim and the Leviim, who are going to then spread it and teach it to the Jewish people. Shirat Azinu is something that is given to the people directly. So already we see that there's some sort of difference in the methodology of how this is taught. This is something that B'nai Israel are supposed to remember. I remember when I was in 11th grade and I was learning uh, in Berea High School with Mrs. Uh, Elisheva Taitz and we learned Shirat Azinu, and she made us memorize it. And the truth was in 11th grade, I probably didn't appreciate it. But the idea was exactly that. Moshe Rabbeinu was saying to the people, this is something that should be on the tip of your tongue. This is something that should always be accessible to you. It's hard to remember laws. It's hard to remember details, but everybody remembers songs, right? Everybody remembers those lyrics. Um, think for a second if you've ever had an experience with um, somebody who's elderly. For example, I used to spend uh, Shabbat meals every once in a while with a woman with dementia. And one of the reasons that I was asked to go was because I love to sing. And so I would sing all of these mirot that she would remember. She couldn't remember the names of her children, unfortunately. She couldn't remember what I had told her two sentences before. But as soon as those songs started, as soon as the melody started, she slipped back in to something, into a world that she had lost connection with before that. And that's the power of song. And so while the details of Torah are important, Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, all the things that I told you, remember this. Remember this piece of it. I'm going to put it him in their mouths. And this is going to be a way that you can remember that. But there's something else that differentiates Ha'azinu from the prakim that come before it. And that something is that we can really see uh, in Pasuk Chavvav. So if we take a look at Pasuk Chavvav and Chavzayin, 26 and 27, what do we see? Amarti af'ehem ashbita me'anosh zichram. Lulei ka'as oivei agor penin karut saremo pen yomru yadinu ramav lo Hashem pa'aletzot. So what is the reason for the redemption at the end of Ha'azinu, says Pasuk Chavav and Chavzayin, I was going to spread the remains of the Jewish people throughout the entire world. I was going to make sure that their memory was not remembered amongst men. But then, Lule, Ka'asoyevagor, I thought about the enemy. I thought about what the enemy might do if I destroyed B'nai Yisrael. So why were B'nai Yisrael saved according to Ha'azinu? B'nai Yisrael were saved according to Hazinu because Hashem wanted to make sure that his name remained masterful in the world, that he remained the master of the universe, a Kiddush Hashem. He saves B'nai Yisrael not because of their own merit, but because of the merit of his name. This directly contrasts what we see at the beginning of Paraklamet Aleph. In Paraklamet Aleph, we finish with the blessings and the curses, and we're told, if you do good, Good things will happen to you. And if you do bad, you will be punished. Not only does Paraglamid Bet have a different reason for redemption, meaning redemption happens not because B'nai Israel did tshuva after they did a chait, like we see in, in Lamed Aleph implies, but rather because of this shame Hashem. Not only do we see that, but we also see that a big part of the middle of the song 
is a description of how Hashem is going to destroy those enemies. So what do we see in Paraglamid Aleph? Paraglamid Aleph is a clear cut. You do good, you do bad, you get punished, you do good, you do tshuva, and Hashem redeems you. And it's, there's no other descriptions. Paraglamid Bet, it was good, you did bad. I have all these descriptions of how your enemies are going to come and hurt you. And then I'm going to wipe out those enemies with lots of descriptions. Because I'm worried about my name. And so we see that there are, is a focus of the name of the, of the enemies. We see that there's a focus of what Hashem is doing in order to punish the people that hurt B'nai Israel. And I think these two differences are hugely important when understanding the message of Hazinu and the need for Hazinu, despite the fact that it seems so repetitive. B'nai Israel are at a time of transition. And the truth is, if we look at other times of Shira and Tanakh, we also see that they happen at times of transition. Shira Tayam, that's when Geulah is really fulfilled, right? That we could say when Hashem took us out of Egypt, that was redemption. But it wasn't until B'nai Israel saw the bodies of the Egyptians who had come to attack them militarily, destroyed and defeated, that they realized that they were indeed free. And it was that transition from slave to freedom that happens on the banks of the sea. Looking at Shirat Devorah, this is the last conquest that we really have of the Canaanim in the land of Israel. Yoshua, unfortunately, during his time, the Jewish people did not finish conquering the Canaanim. And here, against the Avin, Melech Hatzor, and the rest of the enemies of B'nai Israel, this is the completion of the conquest against the Canaanim. We have these moments of transition, of moving from slave to free, of moving of conqueror to settler. And here we have a transition as well. We're moving from the generation that's living in the Midbar, that's living in the desert, that is being taken care of completely by God, to a people that is going to need to be self-sufficient. The man is going to stop falling. They're no longer going to have a cloud. They're going to have to do laundry. That's like, to me, the big one, right? The Jewish people are on this cusp of relating to Hashem in a different way. And so here again, at a time of transition, what do we have? We have Moshe Rabbeinu saying, what's really the point of all the Torah? Covenant with Hashem. When it's just the Torah going through the description of what's going to happen, so then we have the details. Cursed, blessings, you do bad, bad things happen, you do tshuva. Shalom al Yisrael. But in the song, in the emotion, in the moment of transition, what do B'nai Yisrael need to hear? Even if you do bad. Even if it's a time when you think that Hashem has hidden your face. And in fact, Hashem says, like we heard in the Pesukim, Hashem did hide his face. Hashem has a relationship with you. And it's not just about you're going to do tshuva and you're going to return. Hashem is going to enact revenge against the people that hurt you because he loves you. Hashem is going to be in a relationship with you. The reason for the mitzvot, the reason for bringing you into Eretz Yisrael, it's all because Hashem loves you. And yes, sometimes in relationships we mess up. But even in that moment of mess up, even in that moment of punishment, remember when you're ready to come back, Hashem is going to be there. It's going to be part of the covenant. But we're going to take it one step further. There's two different reasons given in these two prakim about why it is that Hashem is going to enact 
that revenge? Is it going to be because B'nai Yisrael did tshuva? Or is it going to be Hashem's name? And here again, we're at a moment of transition. And here again, we need both of these messages. Yes, it's true. There's schar and onish in the world. And yes, it's true. The way that you act, Hashem is going to punish you and maybe kick you out of the land or maybe have your enemies come and attack you so that you can't live peacefully in the land. And your actions matter. But as you're moving into a time when you're going to be focused very much on your actions, right? It's going to be a matter of agriculture and there's going to be uh, your own defense and it's not going to be Hashem taking care of you in the same direct, easy to see manner that it was in the Midbar. Don't forget that Hashem has his plan. You have a place in the world to do your own actions. You have a place in the world to be able to affect everything around you. But Hashem has his own plan. And everything ultimately comes from that own plan, which again is why we end the Shira with, uh, with Psukim, Klamiteto, uh, Memgimo. Why do we end it like that? Hashem is the ultimate master. That is what the Shira is about. And we need that Shira as we're going into Eretz Yisrael. We don't just need the laws and the rules. Those are important, but we need the reminder that we're part of Hashem's plan. And even though we are, which is something I think that uh, we feel a lot today in Eretz Yisrael as well, right? We have this strong and powerful army and we have high tech and innovation and all of these wonderful things because we're in the land of Israel and we're Jews and we're innovating and we're smart. And we have, uh, they always say that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. We have, unfortunately, a lot of necessities. But at the same time that we're proud of that and we continue that, Azinu reminds us, don't forget that Hashem runs the world. Don't forget that not always is the effort that we put in what we're going to gain. I'm also a tour guide in addition to uh, my teaching and, and working in Eshkelot here in Matan. And I often joke that tour guiding is the agriculture of today. Because if it rains too much or if it rains too little, or if there is coronavirus, or if there is unfortunately uh, security issues in Israel. So all of these things affect tourism. And somebody could call me today and say, hey, can you guide tomorrow? And then that's great. I have Parnassah. But then Corona comes and you have no Parnassah. And it's that same sense of agriculture, which maybe I don't have as strong of a connection to here in the land of Israel, but that idea that who knows what's going to be tomorrow? Right. So I have to put in my Hishtadlut and, and Perak Lamed Olive demands that of me. Perak Lamed Olive demands that I recognize that there is cause and effect. But Perak Lamed Beta Azinu, the song of the soul, is what reminds me of the covenant and my relationship with Akadish Barahu. What I'd like to do with the rest of the time that we have together is look a little bit closer at the idea of Shira of either poetry or song, and what we can gain out of that methodology that we see employed um, by Hashem in Tanakh, um, specifically in Chumash um, and the Nevi'im uh, in uh, Navi, of course, and of course Tehillim and uh, other places in, in our liturgy as well. You know, it's interesting, we mentioned Rashi, and we said that when it said in Paraklam at Aleph, Pasuk Yitet, Hashira Hazot, so Raji very quickly comes and says, oh, it's Ha'azinu, what follows directly afterwards. But there are other parshanim 
that say Hashira Hazot is actually referring to the entire Torah and not just Ha'azinu. And it refers to Torah as Shira. In fact, the Rambam has a really interesting halacha in Mishnah Torah, uh, in Zion Aleph, where he says the following. It is an affirmative precept binding upon every individual is Ezraelite to write a scroll of the law for his own use. As it is said, now therefore write this song for you, right? This is the pasuk that we just quoted from Devarim Lamed Aleph. As the Torah is not written in separate sections, this means write for yourselves the Torah in which this song is contained, right? As opposed to the song itself, it's write what this whole song is contained in. Even if one's ancestors have left a person a Torah scroll, it is a religious duty to write a scroll at his own expense. If he wrote it at his own hand, it is accounted to him as if he received it from Sinai. If one does not know how to write a Torah scroll, he should get others to write it for him. He who corrects a Torah scroll, even a single letter of it, is regarded as if he has written it completely. So this really is where the custom, um, I remember myself as a child that we used to uh, buy letters in Sefer Torah, like they would have children Sefer Torah and you could buy a letter and you would get like a little piece of paper about what your letter was. And I remember mine sat up on the mantle for many, many years. Uh, the idea of writing a Sefer Torah, each person for himself, even if he's given a Sefer Torah, the Rambam says comes from this Pasuk, this identification of the Torah as Shira. And it's an interesting halachic conclusion that he comes to. Basically, he takes the Pasuk that we just saw and he says, if I have to put it him, right? If it has to be in their mouths, it has to be this meaningful portion at a time of transition, like we just talked about with Ha'azinu, then it's not enough for me to receive a Torah, right? And we can apply this to the Torah learning as well. It's not enough for me to receive the covenant. It's not enough for me to receive the halachot. How am I going to write them myself? Now, obviously, that doesn't mean writing halacha myself per se, but what it means is how am I accepting Torah myself? How am I making this my own? Where's my ownership of it? And so it's a very easy uh, conclusion, I think, from the Rambam's halacha is that it's not just a matter of halachic um, authority that we're talking about in terms of writing a Torah scroll, but it's actually something that goes much bigger than that in terms of our own piece of understanding, our own connection to Torah. There's a beautiful piece from the Amek Davar, the Nitziv, um, who was born in 1816. He died in 1893. He was born in Mir. He becomes the Rosh Hashiva of Velazhin. Um, and what's actually really interesting in comparison to our Parsha is that he had planned to come to Eretz Yisrael, but unfortunately he had a stroke and he wasn't able to travel. He was not feeling well enough. And so he dies in um, Belarus, what today is Belarus, right? The, the, the larger Russian uh, landmass. And he's not able to make it to Eretz Yisrael. And there's a very sad parallel between that and Moshe Rabbeinu, who also was not able to make it to Eretz Yisrael. But the Nitziv says something beautiful. He talks about the necessity of analyzing Torah like a poem. We still have to understand, so I'm quoting now from his introduction. We still have to understand how the whole Torah could be called a poem. Surely it's not written in the language of poetry. Right? Because that's one of the things that we can say. Hazinu is written in the language of poetry and it's Shirat Hazinu. But if we're going to look at the whole Torah in this context, it's not written the whole thing as a poem. So there are different ways that we have to understand it, says the Nasiv. Number one, for the Torah speaks in fragmented language, and it is well known to anyone who has studied that this language of fragments is very different from the language of prose. In a poem, the idea is not fully explained the way it is in prose. So one has to make notes in the margins to say that one rhyme means this and another rhyme means that. 
And that is not just creative interpretation. That is simply the nature of poetry, even the most basic poetry. And it is further understood that one who deeply studies an idea expressed in this poetic form becomes connected to it. According to the Nitziv, the way that we connect to Torah is by analyzing it because it was purposefully written in a way that engages, that pulls us in, that necessitates me putting myself into the text in some way. He also talks about that this is the fact that I'm, I'm skipping a little bit in the quote, but he says, and this is not just creative interpretation. On the contrary, this is the most basic way, the most shot way to understand the verses. The second category or, or topic that he talks about is that in poetry, there is a richness that comes from its having been adorned with all kinds of hints in a way that isn't done with prose. Examples are the custom of using the first letter in each line to spell out the alphabet or to write out the poet's name. There is a richness that is unique to this fragmented language and not to prose. And it is well known that in order to achieve this level of richness, the poet is often forced to bend language so that the beginning letters end up being the ones that he is seeking. So it is exactly with the whole of the Torah, all of it. Aside from the most basic, simple reading, there are in every word many secrets and hidden ideas. Because of this, there are many instances when the language of the Torah is not being read literally. And all of this is not just true for Chumash, but with all of Tanakh. And so what the Nitziv is telling us is that the way that Torah is written demands of us to figure out where we are in relation to the Torah. It demands of us not to just simply read it, not to just, oh, this is what it's saying, but to dig for the depths and to plumb the secrets that have been placed there by the master of the universe. And so again, this idea of song being something that connects me to Hashem as the creator of the universe, we see as a theme that is being played out, not just in Ha'azinu, but looking at the whole Torah as well. Rabbi Dr. Aviad Stolman, who is a modern Torah scholar, he has a degree in, in Talmud from Bar-Ilan, uh, so he writes the following on Tehillim. The laws and ordinances of the Holy One, blessed be he, were given to us deliberately in poetic style because the essence of the poetic approach, more than any other style, made it possible to embed and conceal new and special ways of interpretation, which we can discover only by toiling over the Torah. Although today we hardly ever come up with new interpretations of scripture, writing Torah Chidushim on the Talmud is for us the principal way in which we perform the commandments to write down this poem. For us, it enables us to participate in literary interpretive dialogue in the Torah. So, of course, he's coming like his PhD is in Talmud, so he sees that as uh, a way that we can connect to Nuchidushim. But one of the things that I love about living in Israel, especially as a tour guide, but of course as a Tanakh teacher, is how living here and seeing the land changes the way that we read Tanakh in Galut. And one of my favorite examples is the discussion of the word pim. Uh, in the Viamachronim, and we didn't know what a peem was until they found one in archaeology, and they discovered these little peems were weights, and it totally changed the context that we had of the psukim. When the Ramban traveled to Eretz Yisrael, he changed some of his pirushim because they said, oh, if only I had known how the layout of the land was, I would have said, duh, right? And the idea that living in Eretz Yisrael and living in the place that the Avot lived and that these stories were meant to be lived with helps us with Perushim. And that's one of the reasons why I brought this quote from Rabbi Dr. Stolman, because I feel like sometimes when we learn Tanakh, we feel like everything's been said already. But Dafka, because specifically because 
It was written as a poem. There is always more, whether it's more because we know more about ancient Egypt now or we know more about Eretz Yisrael and the Near East and how that all fit together, or it's whether because nobody with my exact experiences and my exact approach to the world and my relationship with Hashem has ever read the text before. And so the fact that it's written in the way of poetry or the fact that it's written in a way that is not the standard, let's just read it, allows so much space. The contraction is what allows the space for me to put myself into it. And again, further my relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Rabbi Chiel Michal Epstein, who is the author, the famous author of the Aruch Shulchan, he actually was also uh, related to the Nitziv, who we we mentioned before as well, in the Emek Davar. So we have family members showing up today. Um, so in his introduction to Aruch Shulchan in Choshen Mishpat, he says the following. Uh, Rabbi Chiel Michal Epstein lived in 1829 to 1904, also in the area of Belarus and Russia. So he says the following, in every Torah debate, whether between Tanaim, Amoraim, Geonim, or Poskim, in truth, one who properly understands will see that they are the words of living God, and all of them reflect some aspect of halacha. On the contrary, this is the glory of our holy and pure Torah. The entire Torah is called Shira, and the glory of a song is expressed when the kolot, the sounds or the voices, are different from each other. The beauty of it is in its harmony. A swimmer in the Sea of Talmud will appreciate the beauty of different kolot, each and every one of them. What I think Rev Epstein adds to the discussion is that it's not just about me and my learning, but it's about us in our learning. And when we bring song Right. And when we talk about song as in melody and not just about the meter or the literary aspects of it, but when we bring song, everybody with their harmony and adding their piece, when one of those is missing, you hear it. When the bass is not there, it doesn't bring it all together, but you need that high note to really hit that like geschmack. I'm a musician. So when I, when I start thinking about harmony is like that one note and you're just like, Oh, now it's good. Every single person in Shira needs to add their voices, not just about me. And so this transforms Torah learning and my relationship with Hashem to becoming something about the people, something about the cloud. I can never get a full experience unless I'm listening to other voices. If we take a look, I actually have a quote here from Sichot HaRav Tzvi Yehuda, who is Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, who was the son of the Rav Cook, the chief rabbi of Israel, he lived in 1891 until 1982. So again, relatively in the grand scheme of things recently, I still think sometimes it's 1997. So 1882 doesn't feel so far away. And uh, what he says is the whole Torah is a song. The whole Gemara and the whole Shulchan Aruch are a song, which reveals the flow of godly life. My father of Cook of blessed memory came up with a proverb. Just as Yesh Chukim Lashira, there are rules for composing a poem or a song. So too, yesh shira b'chukim, there is singing in the rules. Since the Torah is a song, we learn the Torah with a nigan. In the words of Tilim, my whole being will exclaim, who is like you, Hashem? Achayot yeshoreru, the angels are singing and we will sing with them. Again, it's just a beautiful image to think about everything we do in life, every time we follow a halacha, every time we learn a new parsha, every time we do anything that we're part of this song. And going back to what we said about Hazinu, we're part of this covenant. And when Moshe Rabbeinu taught Hazinu, he was trying to stress to Ben Israel, no matter what, remember, you're part of this relationship with Hashem. I'd like to end with a final piece 
by Rev. Lord Jonathan Sachs-Zetzel. And this is his uh, piece on the Parsha from 5776. And why call the Torah a song? Because if we are to hand on our faith and a way of life to the next generation, it must sing. Really, I could just stop right there. To me, that's like enough to give me fortitude and inspire me. But of course, Rabbi Sachs keeps going and there's just beauty in everything that, that is going to follow. Torah must be effective, not just cognitive. It must speak to our emotions. As Antino Damasio showed empirically in Descartes' error, though the reasoning part of the brain is central to what makes us human, it is the limbic system, the seat of the emotion, that leads us to choose this way, not that. And in essence, if we, um, this is Rivi now pausing what Rabbi Sachs is saying, uh, if we take a look, for example, at uh, Rev Dessler, he talks about this all the time, the Nekudata Bahira, the point of choice is personal to each individual person, and it's not something cognitive, it's definitely something emotional. Going back now to Rabbi Sachs, if our Torah lacks passion, we will not succeed in passing it on to the future. Music is the effective dimension of communication, the medium through which we express, evoke, and share emotion. Precisely because we are creatures of emotion, music is an essential part of the vocabulary of mankind. Song is central to the Judaic experience. We do not pray, we daven, meaning we sing the words we direct towards heaven. Nor do we read the Torah, instead we chant it, each word with its own cantillation. Even rabbinical texts are never nearly met with studies. We chant them with the particular sing-song note to all students of Talmud. Each time and text has its specific melodies. The same prayer may be sung to half a dozen different tunes depending on whether it's part of the morning, afternoon, or evening service, and whether the day is a weekday, a Shabbat, a festival, or one of the high holidays. There are different cantillations for biblical readings depending on whether the text comes from the Torah, the Nevi'im, or the Ketuvim. Music is the map of the Jewish spirit, and each spiritual experience has its own distinctive melodic landscape. Judaism is a religion of words, and yet, whenever the language of Judaism aspires to the spiritual, it modulates song. I'm going to repeat that. Judaism is a religion of words, and yet, whenever the language of Judaism aspires to the spiritual, it modulates into song, as if the words themselves sought to escape from the gravitational pull of finite meaning. Music speaks to something deeper than the mind. If we are to make Torah new in every generation, we have to find ways of singing its song in a new way. The words never change, but the music does. If we take a look at Ha'azinu and we strip away everything else, Moshe Rabbeinu is giving a gift to the people. I'm not going to be with you, but Hashem is going to be with you. And if you want to continue to build that relationship, all you have to do is sing. Thank you and Shabbat Shalom. Before we go, I would just like to remind everyone that Matan's Elul program will be taking place this year from August 29th through September 2nd, and the academic year will begin on Sunday, October 10th. You can find all the information you need to register on Matan's website, and we'll be looking forward to seeing you there in person. Please, God, everyone should have a healthy and wonderful summer. Thanks for listening. You can stream and download all Matan podcast episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website. Feel free to share feedback with us as you listen. You can write us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Lastly, please do Matan podcast and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new audiences. Shabbat Shalom.